Do you like to sweat? Do you enjoy working out? Are you looking for new exercise or fitness ideas? Or are you simply interested in learning more about how to live a healthier lifestyle? If you're looking for information or resources on how to use exercise to improve your quality of life, then All About Fitness is for you. My name is Pete McCall, and I'm a fitness professional who's been educated in training personal trainers since flip phones and portable CD players were popular. I started this podcast to provide a source of reliable information about how to use exercise to help you live your best life possible. Just because we're all getting a little older does not mean we have to give up our favorite sports or recreational activities. The main theme of All About Fitness is to feature the types of exercise that can slow down the biological aging process and help you learn how to use exercise to be your personal fountain of youth. One of the hardest things about identifying the most successful workout for your needs is that while we all have the same basic physiology, every single person will respond to exercise in different ways. A well-organized research study can give us some ideas about how the body will respond to certain variables, such as type of exercise, the amount of intensity, or length of duration. But the fact remains that each of us will experience a slightly different outcome even if we all do the same workout. This creates a challenge for determining the best type of exercise to help you reach your fitness goals, especially those regarding losing weight or getting rid of unwanted body fat. On episode 26 of All About Fitness, I have my first returning guest, my good friend Fabio Camana, who is a professor of exercise and nutrition science at San Diego State University. Fabio and I sit down to talk about the physiology of weight loss, specifically how our bodies store fat and what we can do to get rid of unwanted body fat. The processes for gaining and losing weight are complicated, but if we have a basic understanding of the science involved, they can help us make informed decisions and lead us towards the type of exercises and activities that can maximize our levels of caloric expenditure. Losing weight isn't just about how much you exercise. The little opportunities that you have for physical activity throughout your day, like standing instead of sitting, taking the stairs instead of an elevator, or, if you're lucky, being able to walk to work, can really add up to significant gains. Listen closely to this episode of All About Fitness, because you're about to learn everything you wanted to know, and maybe a little more, about how we gain and lose weight. Now, if this fascinates you and you want to learn more about how the body functions or you want to learn more about exercise or type of workouts you should be doing, then you can join Fabio, myself, and a number of other talented speakers, instructors, personal trainers at the SCW Fitness Conferences this year. Go to www.scwfit.com for details. SCW organizes a number of fitness conferences around the country where you can learn about specific types of exercise and even earn credentials if you want to become a personal trainer or start teaching group fitness classes. You can use the discount code McCall17, M-C-C-A-L-L-1-7, to save money on your registration. Now let's get on to this episode of All About Fitness, but first, a brief word from our sponsors. Active Motion Bar is the first resistance training bar where 30% of the weight is a moving mass. An active motion bar can help you strengthen your fascia and elastic connective tissue, as well as your muscle, which is important for staying injury-free during the aging process. Research has found that exercising with an active motion bar can be up to 170% more effective than using traditional weighted bars. Active Motion Bar, let the resistance move you. www.activ 
motionbar.com. Vicor Fitness is the maker of the new TerraCore, which is a step, bench, balance trainer, and multifaceted exercise tool combined into one single platform. Go to vicorefitness.com to see the newest piece of equipment that'll be taking the fitness industry by storm in 2017. Use the code AAF to save 20% on purchasing a TerraCore of your own. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. Vicor Fitness. Better results from better products. Skills is a sponsor of All About Fitness. Skills makes products for all phases of the workout, from warm-up to speed, agility, strength, and most importantly, recovery. No matter what your fitness goal, Skills has a product to meet your need. Use code PM30 for a 30% discount on your order. Skills, fitness and performance products. Be ready. www.sklz.com All right, so I'm here with San Diego State Professor Fabio Camana. Uh, how you doing today, Fabio? Doing well, Pete. All right. Do you want to Good give a little? Again? Do you want to? Yeah, it's a pleasure. You're you're the first guest I've had uh, for the second time, but you're always a wealth of knowledge. Uh, can you give uh, our listeners a little reminder of kind of all the things you do in the fitness industry? <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, obviously, I teach at San Diego State. I also run our fitness certificate program at UCSD. And then, as you know, you and I worked together at ACE for several years, where we kind of were the 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 brain trust behind the development of the IFT model. And, uh, you know, obviously since then I've moved on to NASM. I've been with NASM since 2011. I kind of work in the capacity as kind of a, you know, faculty instructor for them. And then I do some consulting in the fitness industry just like you do. So kind of keep myself one foot in academia and one foot in the fitness industry. And I think, uh, you know, it keeps me busy, keeps me out of trouble, and it keeps me connected with folks like you. No, it, well, I appreciate that. And, and I think what, what – what I like about anytime we have a discussion is that you really you your knowledge of, of the subject matter always blows me away. And just so people who are aware that are listening, Fabio doesn't have a textbook in front of him. He doesn't have a list of notes in front of him. I don't think he has his computer open. He is he's literally we're just having a discussion. And, and what we're going to go into on fat metabolism is literally just he, he's a wealth of knowledge. And if we have a little bit of time, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Marvel Universe and about Dr. Strange, because besides knowing about physiology, Fabio is a, is a, has a sick, uh, sick uh, understanding of, of uh, the Marvel Universe. But you calling me a nerd? I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm just calling you a very well. I'll take it. I'll call. I'm calling you a very well resourced, a very well read individual. Well, um, well, thank you very kindly. But but we're, I want to talk to you about fat metabolism and really kind of like fat loss and weight loss because obviously that's one of the most um, most common reasons why people exercise. And I think a lot of people. I don't know if it's misinformation from the general media. I don't know if it's misinformation from quote-unquote gym experts or the gym myths. But I think a lot of people um, take um, an inefficient approach to fat loss or fat metabolism. In your opinion, what are some of the most common mistakes that people have or the common misperceptions about fat loss or about weight loss related to fat loss? Well, you know, Peter, I think you you made great mention to, you know, some of the sources of misinformation. And there's also misinformation in the research because, as I said, you know, think of this as a puzzle that we're still trying to solve. 
we're, you know, as we've started to unravel the human genome, you know, we first discovered what we call the obesity gene, which was the FTO gene. And since then, we've discovered a myriad of other genes that are involved in expressing, you know, different facets of obesity. And the reality is we don't really know. So given that the research is still kind of guessing, when I say guessing, they're not guessing, but they're still trying to figure out this puzzle, that has led to kind of a whole slew of, you know, misinformation out there, you know, based on maybe old or bad research, as well as what people looking to kind of make a quick dollar, you know, make a quick dime off of, uh, you know, exploiting people's, you know, vulnerability to, and, and kind of vanity, if you want to say. So some of the some of the quick to answer your question, some of the quick uh, some of the uh, the leading and I'm not sure if this is an, a kind of comprehensive list, but it's an inclusive list. I would say some of the biggest myths out there. I, one of the ones that comes to mind right now is, you know, in order to lose weight, I got to eat less calories. And, you know, you have to understand that the body is an amazing machine in, when it comes to self-preservation. And, you know, you, all you got to do is go back to our ancestors to realize how they survived through those times. And we lived through periods of feast and famine. And so the body, you know, much like you would do in your car when you're running out of gas, is that you would drive conservatively. And so when your body senses that its energy reserves are being depleted, either because of the fact that you're exercising very hard and you haven't recovered or you're starving yourself, i.e. eating less low, low amounts of calories, then your body will go into a, a self-preservation state. In other words, you will burn less calories. And when you think about metabolism, the biggest piece of the pie of metabolism is what we call your resting metabolic rate. So that's the energy you expend just being alive. And that accounts for about 60 to 75% of all the energy we burn in a day. And so that's the, that's the engine that we want to keep revving. And the first thing that happens, you know, via a hormonal interface is if the body senses it's being starved because you've decided, hey, you know what, if eating 800 calories is, you know, what I need to do, well, that mindset will just force the body to start going to a preservation state where your metabolism will slow down. And this number, it can slow down by 20%. Doesn't seem like much on a daily basis, but you you aggregate that over a year. That could be you know to the total of about thirty to thirty-one pounds over a year. So that's probably one of the big misconceptions: is people feel like, oh, I have to, you know, starve myself. The other thing people oftentimes do is they think I got to exercise hard. And the other misconception here is that if you look in the grand scheme of things, when you consider that on an average week, an American male today is eating over seventeen thousand five hundred calories in a week. The average American female is about 12,500 calories, just under that. Now, you think about that, and you think about how many calories are you really expending in your workout? You know, forget the fact that you might be or feel entitled to a reward after your workout, but let's think about the average American in a workout, maybe three sessions a week, so 900 calories over the week. And then you think about your calories that you expend, uh, you consume in a week, and we're talking about 12,000 to 17,000. The question remains... What does exercise really chip away at? It's barely 10% of your calories. So the other myth is that if I exercise, the pounds will just fall off my body. There has to be a lifestyle change. There is nutritional aspect. There is certainly the exercise aspect. And I'm not trying to downplay exercise. It has a myriad of benefits. But exercise is the sole solution to weight loss. You've got one of two options. A, you're going to be you know, horribly sort of disappointed, number one. Or two, you're going to have to really train hard, fast, long, frequently, and you're probably going to have a bad exercise experience. You may even amount to overuse injuries. And down the road, especially as we get older and older, you and I know being Gen Xers, the body doesn't recover that well. So that kind of, you know, going to the gym and hitting it hard five, six days a week is not a sustainable solution. 
So the other myth out there is that I just need to exercise. No, it has to be more. And we've started looking at what you do the other 16, 17 hours of the day. And that's really the game changer. That's where the battle of weight loss will be won. So, Last, uh, sorry, sorry, but real quick, I, wanna I don't come, want to go into much. So I'll stop yeah, those two. Yeah, so I want to come back to, to the first thing you mentioned on resting metabolism because RMR. And, and when I've heard you speak about this, it, and you threw out the numbers about the average caloric intake, so we'll take those one at a time. Sure. But resting metabolic, resting metabolic rate is the amount of energy that people expend during the day during their normal daily process, correct? And, and can you break that down for us, what RMR is involved just in terms sure. of resting and, um, and physical quite- activity? Yeah, so wow. it's quite so when we look at this, you know, I call it the pie chart. I look at, you know, all the energy you burn in a day, and we kind of break it out into three basic categories. The biggest piece of the pie, as I mentioned, is your resting metabolic rate. Now, that is the energy that's just needed to keep you alive. So, for example, you wake up tomorrow morning, and I say, Pete, all you're going to do is sit yourself in a chair, you're going to face the wall, you're not going to eat, you're not going to move, you're not going to watch TV, you're not going to listen to music, you're not going to engage in conversation. It's just that energy needed to keep you alive. That's, as said, is the big piece of the pie. It's 60 to 75% of all the energy you burn in a day. The other two pieces of the pie, one is called the thermic effect of food. Now, this is the energy needed to chew food, to swallow food, to digest food, to absorb food, and to store food. And, and one, one second on that, because I want because this is something that, that I think people often overlook, and that's the reason why that, that, that it's recommended to eat high-fiber uh, carbohydrates versus like high glycemic carbohydrates, correct? Is that because that, of the thermic effect of food that if you're eating more kind of dense, natural, if you will, carbohydrates, higher in fiber, it, it your body has a more involved metabolic process to break that down. Is that correct? I just want to kind of take a it, quick, it, quick look at that. It is correct, but you also have to appreciate it's not, not significant because the reality is the thermic effect of food through the whole day is about 10% of your total calories. So think about it. If you were 2,000 calorie eater, it would be 200 calories. Now, you're absolutely right. The cost of digesting carbohydrates ranges from about 7% of the energy value of the food to about 20% of the energy value of food. And it's only for about the first hour. So let's just say you ate 200 calories of food, you would use your thermic effect, your metabolism would be elevated for about the first hour to the cost of whatever it is. Fat is the most efficient because of fat's caloric density. As a percentage, it's the most efficient uh, food to absorb. So it only has about a 3% thermic effect. So in other words, of all the calories that you're burning, that you're consuming from fat, only about 3% is needed to digest, store, and, and you know, fats. Carbs, you're right. It ranges from 7 to 20%. You're absolutely right. Fibrous foods have the highest cost because it does cost the body more to extract nutrients out of there and to basically pass the fiber through the intestinal tract. But again, these numbers aren't huge. If you want to look at what's the biggest number, it's protein. Protein's thermic effect is around 30%. Now, bases, it varies according to animal-based versus vegetable-based protein. But with the animal-based, uh, with the uh, protein sources, 30% seems impressive. But I want to caution you, don't that doesn't justify running over to a high-protein diet because we're talking about elevating your metabolism by 30% for one hour. Now, your, if you take that metabolism in your day, so I said your resting metabolic rate is 60 to 75% of your total calories. So I'm going to use 2,000 because it makes the math easy for my mind. Let's just say you were a 2,000-calorie burner in a day. That means your metabolism being 60 to 75% is about 1,200 to 1,500 calories. Now, divide that by 24 hours, that means your average metabolism in an hour is somewhere around 50 to 65 calories an hour. If I bump that by 30%, we're talking about 15 calories. That would be the difference of, you know, and say, well, I had three meals through the day, that's 45 calories. Is that insignificant? No, every calorie is significant. 
But, you know, I'm not going to sell the farm on that because 45 calories is really nine minutes of walking. And, and you also have to consider that there's planning and preparation and food costs and health issues and everything associated with, you know, going to high protein diets or carb restricted diets. And so these things all have to be factored. But you are right, going back to your original question, you are right that fiber, apart from the myriad of health benefits, it's certainly going to do what, bump a little bit of that thermic effect. And we're going to take a calorie everywhere we can. I say you beg, borrow, steal a calorie from every part of the body that you can. Okay. What remains is that last part, which is called TEPA. That means thermic effect of physical activity. Now, that's the energy that you expend, kind of going back to your original point, that you would be doing through your activities of daily living. So this could be your trip to the gym. It could be you you know, walking around, walking to the grocery store, taking your pet out for a walk, walking a flight of stairs. And it is also what we call NEAT, this word NEAT that has become kind of moved to the forefront of weight loss. NEAT is an acronym that stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And it really means generating heat, which is, means expending calories by doing just anything simple like standing, fidgeting, all right? The stuff that doesn't constitute movement or exercise. Wait, just one second on that, Fabio, because I want to I hold on that for a second because that's a, that's a huge point for listeners out there. What, what, what we're talking about isn't necessarily going to a gym and doing exercise, but it's about the, the daily activity that you do on a daily basis. Like, for example, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it standing up, you have you're gonna there's gonna be a higher energy cost and, and to kind of add to this what Fabio is saying what I often teach in lectures is that we spend about five five calories of energy to consume one liter of oxygen and that that's kind of how we look at, at energy consumption is is we use oxygen to fuel fuel muscle activity and our body will expend to go back to, to, to Fabio's point earlier if we want to get a calorie of energy anywhere we can. If we increase oxygen consumption, then we can increase caloric expenditure. So if you look at anything that you do during your day of say, okay, you know, if I'm taking an elevator versus walking up three flights of stairs, where am I going to consume more oxygen? What's going to cause more muscle activity? That's where we can have a significant impact on the daily on the daily use. So I just want to kind of bring that in there about looking at it from a different point of view, because that's kind of going down a different route that I want to kind of stay away from. But I want to talk about or get people in that mindset of what can I do to increase oxygen consumption in a normal activity in my daily routine. So, sure. yeah, get back. Good point. Yeah, but then, then so you're talking about you're talking about TIPA and you're talking about NEAT. What are some other examples of how people can, can increase activity? Well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, okay, so if we just look at thermic effect of food. So obviously metabolism. Well, let's just start with the biggest piece of the pie. You know, unfortunately, we have things that slow down our metabolism. It's called aging. So with every decade of, of aging – our metabolism slows down about 2%, you know? So, I mean, again, you might say, well, that doesn't seem like much, but that could be 40 calories a day, which over a period of a year can become significant. It's a, it's a handful of pounds, right? It could be four pounds, four to five pounds. So this all adds up. The other thing that is, you know, obviously, you know, muscle mass. So as we age, we undergo sarcopenia. And so as, as that muscle mass is lost, there's less muscle mass to maintain. So metabolism slows down. So probably the most effective thing you can do to rev your engine is probably build muscle mass, number one, and number two, not starve yourself. So those are probably the two biggest um, attributes to preserving or boosting resting metabolic rate. When it comes to thermic effect of food, we've seen a lot of studies. People say, what if I eat, you know, if there's a, a thermic effect that happens after I eat, what if I ate, say, three meals versus five meals? If I ate more frequent meals, would that increase my thermic effect of food? The interesting, some research out there has showed that it doesn't really come down to the number of meals, but it comes down to the caloric quantity 
consumed in a day. In other words, if they, they did studies where they took isocaloric diets, in other words, 2,000 calories, uh, eaten three times a day versus five times a day, and it didn't make a difference. Now, from a standpoint of health, blood sugar level, controlling appetite, huge implications. But from a standpoint of just changing a thermic effect of food, doesn't make that much of a difference. <clears throat> the composition of your meal, as I said, makes a small difference. You know, there are spicy foods like your cayenne peppers and your, you know, things of that nature that can certainly boost your metabolism by, you know, maybe 20% for the subsequent hour after you've eaten. But again, you know, you've, you've all experienced that. You get the sweats and everything. Uh, you know, is it really worth it to get 7 to 10 calories to have to deal with what you have to go through in the bathroom, your bowel movements the next day? I don't know. I don't think that's the way to go. <laughs> or or yeah. shoving ice in your mouth to, uh, to, exactly. to accommodate for An the jalapeno study, peppers. Yeah. An interesting study that was done in 2007 looked at getting people to actually drink water on empty stomachs. In other words, between the meals, they had them drinking, you know, 500 ml bottles. And they had them drinking several of these through the day. And they actually measured – yeah, good job – they actually measured the the thermic effect because water, first of all, if it's drunk at a, at a slightly cooler temperature, energy has to be expended to warm that, that 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 fluid back up. But more importantly, water dilutes your blood. And so your body has to actually initiate a system of reabsorbing filtrate to reestablish blood concentration. And when they extrapolated that out to the year, these researchers found that it amounted to a total of about five pounds of energy in a year. So drinking that, you know, two to three of those bottles in a daily basis between meals, yes, it does have an effect on helping control your appetite and things of that nature. It's also important for hydration, which most of us are underhydrated, but it can have a little bit of a caloric effect. So there are small things you can do from thermic effect, but the big player that we're seeing is really where we're looking at in this concept of TEPA. And I said, you know, I always tell people, don't ask people to do more. I mean, I think you and I can both attest to this. I don't have an extra hour in my day. I wish I did. So asking me to go to the gym for another hour in the day, it's just not going to happen. So the mindset should be don't try and find time to do more things. Change the way you do the things you do. And that's just a, a retraining your mind mentality. And this goes back to this neat concept. The biggest game changer that we're seeing when you look at some of the research that's coming out in terms of weight loss and longevity is simply movement, getting up and moving around. And it starts with getting out of the chair. So I'm not asking you to stand. I'm not asking people to move around. I'm saying that would be great. Let's start with simple. Look at your day, and I, I do what's called a metabolic profile. I say just write down what your typical day looks like and just go through. So, you know, midnight to 6 a.m. I'm sleeping, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. I'm getting ready for work, and you just kind of go through the day and then just start to identify, become more self-aware of the areas where you spend a lot of time seated and, re and in reclining positions. And then ask yourself, can you change the way you do the things you do in those positions. In other words, if I'm checking emails, talking, listening to this podcast, you know, texting my friends, can I do that standing versus sitting? And here's the, here's the example I always use to drive the message home. Take the average American woman. She now sits for over 13 hours a day. If I can get her to change the way she does things, not asking her to do more things, but take two of her hours of the day and get her to do those activities she ordinarily does seated and do them standing, I take that and I do it five days a week. So I'm looking at a traditional work week for a working woman, 50 weeks of the year. Pete, what that amounts to is 10 pounds in the year. That's 10 pounds of energy difference. Like you were talking about that liter and five calories. That's what it amounts to over a period of a year. So I'm not asking you to find more time to go to the gym because that's the equivalent. 10 pounds is the equivalent of about 120 trips to the gym if you're burning around 300 calories. So the question is ask the person, what do you, what, I mean, I, I would love the person to exercise, but I also have to be realistic. It starts with self-efficacy. What can you do? And most people will opt for, hey, I can probably find ways 
to do the things I do differently. And I let's start with standing. And then they start to see some change. And that's, you know, the wheel rolling and it gains momentum. And then that could be the, 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 you know, the linchpin or the springboard that launches them into kind of seeing some visible changes that builds their self-efficacy, then leads them to driving, you know, driving them consistently into the gym to be more active and adopting a healthy lifestyle, which is ultimately what we're all, that's our end game for everyone. And, and so with that, I think, you know, when we're looking at, you know, when we're looking at, at weight loss, when we're looking at fat loss, then it's really important to look at the holistic picture. It's not just going to the gym and working harder. And we sure. talked about that in our discussion on high-intensity interval training. But it, it's about adopting this mindset of how can I, if I'm awake, you know, 18 hours, you know, if I'm awake 17, 18 hours in a day, how can I add more just regular activity to that time so that I'm spending more time on my feet, I'm spending more time moving and less time in a seated position? Now, real quick, just briefly, what happens if somebody stays sedentary for too long? Like what is what is LPL, what is lipoprotein lipase, and how is that affected by being seated too long? Sure. I want to just piggyback on one. You made a great point there about moving around. And the other thing to consider is that, you know, other people always consider the option of a diet. The problem with the diet is that you're not just going to lose fat mass. You're going to lose mass, but about 31% of what you lose will be muscle tissue. Well, there goes your metabolism. There goes your functionality. So the movement part of it is really the game changer because that can minimize the loss of muscle tissue. I mean, obviously, we'd love to build and preserve muscle tissue as best we can. But what we want to do is to encourage movement as the basis for weight loss rather than dieting because that really helps preserve muscle tissue and that'll preserve metabolism. I wanted to piggyback because you made that mention. I think it was a great point you made there. Okay, going back to your LPL, lipoprotein lipase. So we have these two you know, very important enzymes that are part of a very intricate system. And lipoprotein lipase really serves one role and the role it does, it, it, it kind of positions itself outside of a cell, both a muscle cell and a fat cell. And what it does, it it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a, a doorman saying, come on in. You know, it invites any, you know, fat fats floating, you know, triglycerides, you know, uh, you know, HDLs, LDLs, anything that's floating through the blood, it invites the fat components into the cell, you know, for storage or for utilization. Now, what we found, and, you know, lipoprotein lipase is a very quintessential enzyme because what we found with this enzyme is that its activity is very different regionally through the body. So we don't, you know, everyone's chasing this, this, this myth of spot reduction. And if we could control this enzyme, we may be able to find some solution in spot reduction. But more importantly, what this enzyme does, it's responsible for moving fats into the cell. Now, for someone who's active, it builds more regional activity in the muscle cells, which means it's more likely to promote fat uptake into the muscle cells rather than into the fat cells for storage. Now, when someone becomes sedentary, and there was a big study that was done, a landmark study that was done on this looking at, you know, 17,000 people that were followed for 12 years. And one of the big takeaways they found is that, that, that when people were sedentary, that enzyme became less active at muscle cells and more active in the fat cells. In other words, promoting more fat deposition into the fat cells. So real quick, real quick on that, because yep. fat in a muscle is used for energy, correct? If, if yes, fat is correct. stored in a muscle, then the mitochondria of the cell will convert that fat through, what is it, the citric acid cycle now? Yes, and so, that, yes. and so it's using that. So fat is not necessarily a bad word in that case, but it's used for energy. You have to remember that fat is basically, when we were storing it or using it in the body, we either store it or use it for energy. And when Correct. it's stored in a fat cell, it's stored for energy. When it's stored for potential energy, when it's in a, when it's in a muscle cell, it's more likely to be used for kinetic energy. Is that correct? Correct. Very correct. Good way of putting it. Yes. Okay. 
So, so obviously what the study showed is that it doesn't have to be exercise, just being mo moving. Moving around can actually help maintain that enzyme's activity levels at the muscle cell. Now, you can't talk about LPL without talking about hormones. And because obviously, you know, these, these enzymes are regulated to some degree by hormones. So obviously cortisol comes into play now. And so cortisol can really direct LPL activity, right? And so we find that cortisol tends to be more active with receptors in the visceral region of the body. And so when we have a, a surplus of fat and you've got stress where your cortisol levels are elevated, you're more likely to do what? Deposit fat into those areas. So the cortisol is going to have a bit of an effect, act, you know, stimulating that enzyme in the visceral fat, which is the fat around your tissue in the abdominal region. So that not only is maybe unsightly, but it's also unhealthy. And so, you know, lipoprotein lipase doesn't act, you know, alone as a standalone. It has this regional activity. It's the ultimate, de you know, determinant of what goes into cells, but its activity levels are influenced by lifestyle and hormones. And ultimately, that comes down to how you live your life. And so, and my understanding is that if you spend too much time sedentary, one thing is you're you're producing less LPL, and two is you're you're promoting more fat storage in the in the fat cells itself than in actually utilizing fat as, as a consistent source of energy. Uh, you know, I'm not sure about the levels of LPL. I just know about the the receptor sensitivity, much like insulin. Yeah. Um, the regional activity of of LPL diminishes at the muscle cell level and it actually elevates itself at the fat cell level, especially your visceral abdominal fat. And so what, it, are, what I want to do is, is do a different um, podcast with you, uh, you know, probably a few weeks from now or, uh, you know, maybe in a month or two about um, all the specific hormones, because we're, we're knocking on the door of that. And that itself is a whole, I mean, you and I both know that, that, you know, a lot of times, you know, nobody walks into the gym on a Monday saying, okay, today's going to be my testosterone day or today's going to be my growth hormone day. But we know, you and I both understand that anything we do that affects the physiology of our body is really change the biochemical levels of how hormones react on the cells. But let's, sure. come, let's come back to, because that's, that's, a, that's a very important thing. Let's, yeah. come, let's come back and stay focused on fat loss and weight loss. So when it comes down to it, um, you know, to stay just on the hormones for a second, what are the hormones involved with fat storage and fat utilization? Because I know <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned cortisol and, and there's insulin. Cortisol and insulin, cortisol, insulin, and glucagon, we'll stay focused on those three. I know we're very involved with that. And then from there, what I want to do is, is how do we control those levels via um, some, some, simple, nutri some sure. simple dietary tips and some simple activity tips? Sure. And we'll see if we're about to keep it that, Brooks. because I don't want to keep, keep your, you too much longer. Um, and we'll save some of the deeper dive into the muscle-building hormones uh, for yeah. a later date. But let's take a look at, um, at, at insulin, at, at cortisol, and glucagon. Sure. You talked about cortisol a little bit, but what role does it play in terms of energy production? Okay, well... Uh... You know, this is why we call it the hormonal matrix, because it is a bit of a mess. Um, you know, just to let you know, there is no, you know, one hormone is influenced by others and influences other hormones. This is a, a very tangled web. So, um, you know, just to give you an example, cortisol can influence a myriad of different hormones. And we talk about human growth hormone. It's influenced by cortisol. So well, is well, testosterone. Well, let's stay on this. I just yeah, wanna, I just, before before yeah. we go into this, because this is where I think, Fabio, we talked earlier about misinformation. This is where I think a lot of common misinformation gets communicated out to the general public is because somebody might – an article, somebody writing an article is very well-intentioned, but they see one component of what cortisol does or they see one component of what growth hormone does. And, and as an author, I'm guilty of this. We tend to focus on 
that a little bit too much without putting it into the whole play. Because you can't just, you cannot talk about cortisol without talking about growth hormone, without talking about mechanical growth factor, without talking about all the myriad sure. of other things going on in the body. So I want to make listeners well aware of that, that when we're talking about this, we're talking about the role of each hormone, but they don't work independently and nothing in the body works independently. Everything is part of a complex system and just influencing one component of that can't change everything, but it's important to be mindful of that whole matrix so you can understand how, how it all comes together. But I think it's, I just wanted to kind of highlight that before we go any further yeah, into cortisol. Great, that's a great point to make. Okay, so let's just look at the body by its biological design. So we have a simple design of the human body. Our ancestors lived by a simple, simple uh, you know, sort of a, a philosophy. It was feast or famine, right? That when they had food, the body enjoyed that food. We built up energy reserves, but then we also had to do what? Be able to preserve energy for the days when we had famine. So that is the role of insulin. Insulin is the quintessential anabolic hormone. When it comes to eating, insulin's job is to promote the uptake of nutrients into the cell, not to be used necessarily, but ideally to be stored. And it's responsible for the uptake of glucose, amino acids, fats, it stimulates all those pathways that build the storage forms and, of course, protein storage forms, muscle tissue. So insulin is obviously directly affected by how you eat and what you eat, all right? Now, cortisol is a very unique hormone, and I think cortisol is actually a very fascinating hormone because when we have a fight-or-flight response, and again, so when the body has a fight-or-flight response, the nervous system is the first to respond, react. And if you think about it, what is our nervous system and our hormonal systems? They're simply communication systems. One of them is rapid acting, like fractions of a second, nervous system. One of them is slow acting, i.e. hormones that could take minutes to be released into circulation. But they, they work as a kind of a, as a one-two punch. And the nervous system actually activates the hormonal system. So when we have a fight-or-flight response, we put into circulation cortisol. Now, cortisol has many roles. It is a catabolic hormone. But that's not all it does. It's also an anti it's a, also an anti-inflammatory. We hear people taking a, you know, a cortisone shot. It's also immunosuppressant. We hear people taking prednisone. These are all, you know, obviously drugs that mimic the function of cortisol in the body. So cortisol has a tremendous variety of, of uses in the body. Now, typically what ends up happening is the, if there is some sort of, you know, stressor, disturbance, cortisol gets released. Cortisol is actually there, you know, to actually help shut off acute inflammation. Cortisol is there to help the breakdown of storing carbohydrates, preserving carbohydrates, especially when our liver glycogen stores. And this is a very big misconception that a lot of people have. A lot of people think that in the morning when I'm fasted, it's my muscle glycogen stores that are low. And that's in fact rarely ever true because I would say this, it's practically impossible for the average adult to ever deplete their muscle glycogen. There's only two ways you can do that. You either are doing exhaustive exercise, like three, four hours of endurance training. Trust me, 60 to 90 minutes of you know, kind of high intensity resistance training in the gym is not going to deplete your glycogen whatsoever. Or you're someone who's just not eating carbs, period. Those people will have depleted muscle glycogen. Unfortunately, what happens on a daily basis is your liver glycogen, which is a much smaller tank, gets depleted on a regular basis. Why? Because when carbohydrates are put into the muscle cells, they're trapped. They cannot get out. It is the liver glycogen that is responsible for preserving blood sugar. And that's where cortisol has a very, very important role. Because in the morning, when people talk about doing fasted cardio, and I'm not endorsing that by any means, the whole idea is that, oh, you're burning more fat. That's why you should do your fasted cardio. There is some truth to that. Not the absolute truth, but there is some truth to that. It's because of the fact that the body has sensed that that liver tank is becoming near empty or becoming low. 
and therefore we need to preserve. And the body is all about self-preservation. So the elevation of cortisol will then suppress the utilization of carbohydrates into the energy pathways and favor more fats. And that's the whole theory built around you know fasted cardio. But that's not all cortisol does. Cortisol also promotes the manufacture of carbohydrates. We call that gluconeogenesis. Now that have, unfortunately comes from protein sources. So that's another downside of cortisol. So cortisol, very unique hormone, has a tremendous you know, uh, sort of uh, array of kind of functions in the body. But from a standpoint of fat metabolism, yes. Insulin stores fat. Cortisol burns fat, all right? Promotes the burning of fat. But not in a short term, fine. But in a long term, i.e. maintaining stress levels by either starving yourself, not managing your life stress, the sustained elevated levels of cortisol are very damaging to the body, all right? So it's not a good thing. It's good in short term dosages like your exercise bout. But now you talked about glucagon. Glucagon is a hormone that obviously is really involved in the functionality of gain. Unlike insulin that says, hey, I store, glucagon does the exact opposite. Glucagon takes glycogen that's stored and in the liver and helps break it down. It also helps break down stored fats, and it also helps do what? Promote a little bit of protein uh, synthesis. So glucagon functions a lot like cortisol. But unlike cortisol that has system-wide, you know, kind of what we call a a systematic effect a systematic effect around the entire body and it has a multitude of different effects glucagon is really limited to what it does in the liver but it does very similar things to what cortisol does in fact when someone goes into an exercise bout we see elevated levels of glucagon elevated levels of cortisol at the initial onset of the stress so in life if i come back and you say you ask that you say i want to finish off with one thing and i'll just kind of preamble this People ask me, like, what can I do about my hormones? I mean, obviously, there's a million things that can be done medically. But when I look at lifestyle, I always tell people it's a domino effect. If I can control insulin and if I can control cortisol, you now set yourself on the path for kind of creating balance across the entire hormonal matrix. And those are my the two, to me, the most two, the two most important hormones that we can, that I, I, I target. Why? Because they're the two that we can have a huge influence on. By how you live your life. And so those can be controlled via, I mean, we look at nutrition, we look at dietary intake, and that's regulated in some of the timing. Um, we look at sleep. I mean, that's why sleep has been so important, why so many people are making such an emphasis on sleep. And the other component of it is, as we talked about in our previous podcast, is about recovery, allowing time for your body to recover. Because we'll stay with cortisol for a second. If we're overtrained, meaning we're going out and we're doing four or five, six days a week of, of moderate to high intensity exercise where we fatigue ourselves, that elevated cortisol, does that now become kind of a, a inhibiting? Does it, does it limit our fat reduction? And how so? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so just from a standpoint of uh, you know, continuing with what with your with your statements there, you know, so you know, sleep recovery. You have to understand one thing: your body doesn't know the difference between physiological stress and psychological stress or psycho-emotional stress. The body doesn't care, and nor should it. It is simply the perception of disruption of homeostasis. So, and when that happens, it's simply the magnitude that determines the amount of hormone released. And of course, there is an adaptation that happens out of that too. But what happens is if you have, you know, just a workout and then the rest of your day, you do everything right. Like you just mentioned, you're alluding to eating right, getting your recovery, getting a rest, not overtraining. Then the hormones do what? They go back to normal. Homeostasis is reestablished. You know, it takes a little bit of time, but that's, that's the whole point by recovery. And I think that's becoming the most important. I think you and I both agree on this, how important and how, how undervalued recovery is. And I think that should be a focus in 2017 for a lot of people is 
don't just focus on the training, focus on the recovery. What are you doing outside to help the person restore their body to be ready for the next workout? But let's go back to your point. Let's say I am overtraining. I'm pushing the, you know, I'm pushing, I'm redlining myself all day long. Now, over time, what's going to happen is my body isn't recovering. So that elevated or sustained um, elevated levels of cortisol are going to start to create some horrible effects. Number one, from a a, a immune response system. So what happens is when you we the body senses disruption, you know, we express genes that obviously activate these inflammatory proteins called cytokines and things like that. And these cytokines bring about a quick inflammatory response, and that's a good thing. So acute inflammation helps the body survive. And then what cortisol does is actually helps do what? Turn off that inflammatory response. So we stop making those those um, you know those inflammatory agents. And that's the shutting off of acute inflammation. That's all a healthy process. But the problem is, if you, much like insulin, if you keep cortisol in circulation for too long of a period of time, those receptors that cortisol binds to to shut off inflammation become resistant to cortisol. So much like with insulin, you develop a little bit of that resistance, and there is your onset of chronic inflammation. And you know what happens once you go down the path of chronic inflammation. So there's just one part, all right? Secondly, you look at it from a standpoint of metabolism. So one of the key hormones that we look at in terms of revving our engine is the hormones coming out of the thyroid gland, so T3 and T4. Well, unfortunately, they are stimulated by what we call a tropic hormone coming out of the brain called thyroid-stimulating hormone. Thyroid-stimulating hormone all right, is the hormone that is released, and it goes to the thyroid gland, and it turns on the production of T3, T4, and that revs your engine. Cortisol, remaining in circulation, will shut down the production of thyroid-stimulating hormone. In essence, it's going to slow down your metabolism. I alluded to this earlier when I said that starving yourself can actually slow down your metabolism. Think of something else. Human growth hormone. Everyone talks about human growth hormone and how wonderful it is. You know, We know as adults we don't have much of it. Everyone talks about, oh, we get a little bit of the spike of human growth hormone after a workout. Yeah, it's a spike. It's maybe a 23-fold spike of nothing. So the surges in growth hormone that we see are outside of medicine, in other words, injections and things like that, the natural spikes in human growth hormone we see are small during the day and small at night. We get an elevation of human growth hormone while we're sleeping, right, to help with the repair process. But even that, that hormone is regulated out of the brain by two hormones called somatostatin and somatocrinin. And so these hormones work to do what? Turn on and turn off the release of growth hormone. Well, guess what? Cortisol can influence, you know, those hormones and shut off the production of human growth hormone. And this list is endless. We talk about testosterone, estrogen. Remember, yeah. estrogen is involved in appetite control. We can suppress that. Then you talk about the two big appetite hormones, and there's actually a third one that I like, but people talk about leptin and ghrelin. Well, leptin is what gets released from fat cells about, you know, maybe about 20 minutes after we eat, and it goes to the brain and says, hey, let's shut off the desire to eat. So it controls our eating. It's to prevent us from overeating. Well, cortisol sustained can actually do what? Make you more resistant to leptin, which means you don't really turn off that desire to eat. On the flip side of it, you've got ghrelin. Ghrelin is a hormone that stimulates our appetite and reminds us to eat so we don't starve. Well, flip side here, elevated cortisol can actually stimulate greater sensitivity to ghrelin. So you can see this list, Pete, goes on and on and on. Well, it comes back to that concept of there is no – you cannot isolate. It's, it's not really possible to isolate one hormone and say this is the one we should focus on. Yeah. But I want to – real quick, that is one of the reasons why. I think some of the interesting research I saw this past year and last year and a half – was that people who are overtired 
have a tendency to overeat, very similar to, I mean, they equated it to, to using marijuana about somebody who is, is getting a suboptimal sleep, like six hours, five hours or, or less a night, sure. they're going to be eating more because of this imbalance between, um, it sounds like leptin and cortisol. Is that, is that accurate? I mean that's possible too. I mean obviously the other the other the other issue that's been attributed to overeating with people that don't sleep much is they've got more waking hours, more idle time to do what? Put food in their face, put food in their mouth. So yeah. I think there is a there's definitely a biological um, element involved there, but I think there's also a a you know a lifestyle element involved. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely true. Definitely. And, and, and so we're, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I mean, this is I do, we are going to have a different conversation, Fab, about um, sure. about hormones because I really think um, you know that 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 people don't understand the role that all the hormones play in controlling the physiological adaptations. And now, just to reiterate that that he's not using notes. I haven't seen him refer to his notes once <laughs> during our conversation. So everything that he's been he's been talking about is straight from um, from the top of his head. That's why I think he's such a, an awesome resource for those of us that want to learn more about how exercise affects the body. So coming down to it, looking at weight loss and we're looking at fat loss, what are three things? Like, let's break it down to three things that people should be focused on on a kind of a, a day-to-day basis or how should we change their habits? Because I want to talk, you know, just kind of be able to boil it down to, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about physical activity, but what are three things that people should be paying attention to to kind of initiate the fat loss and weight loss component of, of their lifestyle? Okay. I mean, apart from the obvious things like, you know, realizing that, you know, massive weight loss overnight is not possible and that kind of stuff. If I was to give three kind of guidelines, I would say, number one, um, appreciate the fact that your body is a very intricate biological entity. And if you can find ways to start controlling insulin, which we know we do that through nutritional intervention and cortisol, which really means recovery, identifying stresses, managing stresses, I think that's a great place to start. So take inventory of your life, your, your habits, your behavioral habits, your behavioral choices, and see if you can kind of clean that up. That would be one. Number two, I'd say also appreciate or embrace the reality that exercise as a standalone is not the solution to weight loss because what your only options there are, you know, patient, slow weight loss or the complete opposite where you drive people into something that they are just not capable of doing, which means they're going to get hurt, they're going to disengage. And so I'd say don't try and do more, change the way you do things. So appreciate and embrace the reality that the frontier, the battleground of weight loss is going to really happen in what you do the other 16, 17 hours of the day, and exercises must serve as a complement to that in terms of your weight loss initiatives. If there was a third thing, I would look at your diet. You know, Peter, I will say this. My mindset over the years has shifted. You know, I used to be a strong advocate, as probably most people were, of a, you know, a higher carb, healthy carbs, lower fat, you know, moderate protein diet. And I've kind of shifted my, my, my focus. I'm not a fan of dieting because I think dieting, from a biological standpoint, it has its innate problems, but I think from a psycho-emotional, like especially Gen Xs who have kids and family and job, trying to plan every day what you need to eat and how to do things, I don't think it works. I think intermittent fasting, like a 5-2 intermittent fasting, and again, we can talk about this at a different time, I think is a very a very feasible solution, for, especially for Gen Xs. But I think I'm shifting my focus that I actually like, you know, I, and I look at pre-diabetes in America, I think that the carb intakes in America, when you consider most Americans are very sedentary, I think the carb intakes are too high. I'm in favor of reducing carbs. I'm not restricting carbs. I'm in favor of increasing healthy proteins, so your lean, healthy proteins, getting a little bit more vegetable-based protein in your diet. I, I love my animal-based proteins, but I think we need a balance there. I definitely think we should get more of the healthy fats in our diets, you know, especially when we're leading towards omega-3s and controlling our omega-6s. 
But I definitely think that our carb intakes for the average person who maybe exercises three times a week for 45 minutes, you know, and then spends the rest of their life being sedentary, I think those carb intakes are problem by problem. And it's not glycemic index, it's glycemic load. You know, people think about, oh, spikes of insulin is a problem. That's not the only problem. What we're finding is that elevated insulin, even in small amounts that stays elevated for long periods of time, just think back to what I talked about, cortisol staying elevated, can also be a problem. That's called glycemic load. Insulin, glycemic index is insulin spikes. We're discovering now that glycemic loads are just as dangerous to this progress of prediabetes and, you know, and a lot of diseases. So I think we should shift our diets a little bit to cutting back on carbs. I definitely have to say, I, you know, I don't mind people doing you know, 40 to 45% of their carbs coming from diets. I know I have a thing called scope of practice, and the guide, dietary guidelines talk about 45%. But this is where I think where a good dietitian can come in, and, you know, 40% is definitely workable for the average American. That's plenty of carbs for them to do their 45-minute workouts three times a week. I definitely think we should shift our diet emphasis a little bit and maybe look at our macronutrients and, of course, the choices within those macronutrients. And that's and thanks for saying that about the registered dietitian because I was going to ask um, you know, or make the comment at the end that if people want to really work on their nutrition intake, it is much better to seek out a registered dietitian. And at the bottom of the show notes, I'll put a link to the American Dietetic Association because there's a huge difference between a registered dietitian and somebody who is just claiming to – do nutritional counseling. And, and I think um, you have to always, like with any professional that you hire, you have to always look at their their education, their credentials, and their background. But working with the right person can help you identify how you can plan, um, and I don't like to use the word diet as well, but how you can plan kind of a nutrition plan that's, that's complementary to your lifestyle. Because I think, you know, the, the term I've, I've used or, and heard, um, you know, I, I talked to Sahelia Digsby, one of the RDs that we know um, through our, our speaking circuit, and she said diet is a short-term solution to a long-term issue. And yeah. it's really much better. It's a much better idea to have to develop an overall um, healthy eating plan and not think about a short-term diet. Now, yeah. real quick, Fabio, what I want to – you don't hey. have – you're not here selling anything or anything like that. But no. you're speaking this year on the SCW circuit, correct? And what, do you be te- and what are you teaching at SCW this year? Because I am going to add a link to that down. So if people want to go see Fabio speak, he actually does um, – a pre-conference workshop. Are you doing your, your lifestyle and weight management as a pre-conference? or No. So uh, just to, if I can, just to touch base, just so your readers uh, are just aware there, the American Dietetic Association is now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Oh, geez. Okay, yeah. Because the, the ADA got confusing because there's American Disabilities Act. Yeah. So they've now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Okay. And the registered dietitian is also changing their name to an RDN, a yeah, registered that's... dietitian and nutritionist, so they can take ownership of that name. Anyhow, so I just wanted to kind of make sure because no, there is a little bit of, no, I, little that's bit of confusion. Perfect. I appreciate that. Uh, on the on the uh, with regard to conferences, yeah, I'm speaking. You know, I've got the idea, the three idea conferences I'm speaking at, and I've got several other conferences, and then of course we have the SCWs that you and I do together. In those, I am doing a pre-con on sports nutrition, and I'm doing a pre-con on behavioral coaching, and I'll be focusing there on weight loss and behavioral coaching regarding to weight loss. But I'm actually not doing a weight uh, weight loss okay. uh, conference. And then I've got various sessions, and the sessions are, you know, from in exercise science to programming, just kind of the gambit like you have. Okay, and just so and people know, and, and just so people know, and I'm going to put some of the conferences where, where we'll be this year in, in the show notes. You don't need to be a, um, a, a certified personal trainer or fitness instructor to attend. Anybody can attend any of those workshops. So if you if you like this information, um, you, you can either go to San Diego State, you can move to San Diego and take Fabio's because <laughs> Fabio teaches in the exercise. It's what exercise science and nutrition. 
exercise and nutritional sciences. Exercise and nutritional science, yeah. the sciences program um, at San Diego State. So you can move here and take Fabio's classes at San Diego State, <laughs> or you can catch him uh, catch him on one of the one of the events on the road. Well, well Fabio. Go ahead. And I, just, you know, I, I, and I've been bad at this, but I do post articles on Facebook from time to time on different exercise science topics, and people are more than welcome to go download those. I believe education should be shared, so they can download and they can share them with their, you know, for themselves, with their peers, with their, with their clients. Although it's probably reading for practitioners, not clients. But you know, and I promise to get back into doing more of that in 2017. Yeah, no, and anytime I need to get, I'm going to be working more on my blog. But anytime I can have you guest blog for me and just write up a few points, sure. uh, I'll do that because as, as people can hear, I mean, I, you know, we didn't even have time to go into the Marvel universe, but um, he really is. <laughs> I think he's I, Fabio. There's so much misinformation out there, and I really, and I mean this sincerely, bud, that I think you are truly one of the great resources because a lot of um, there's a lot of garbage out there, a lot of nonsense. But Fabio, as you can tell in our conversation, is one of those guys. Get just just knows it and nails it every single time. So, man, I really appreciate your time. Um, And I'll I'll get that information to you a little bit later, and I'll look forward to, to seeing you soon. Okay, let's go find those Infinity Stones. Okay, there we have it. Hopefully you got something out of that conversation. I know I did. I'm just giggling a little bit because uh, there's probably a little bit too much information in there. But as you can tell, Fabio is just a wealth of knowledge, and he's somebody that really gives it away, not gives it away, but he really likes sharing the information with people. And that's what you find with true educators, people who make a living doing education, whether it's fitness or otherwise, is we just love sharing information. For some of us, learning comes easy. And what I have found for myself that when I teach others, that's the best way to learn. That's how I got involved in teaching in the first place. But Fabio and I have been friends now for almost about a decade. And I really He's one of my favorite people in the fitness industry, and, and I probably say that a lot about a lot of people I have the opportunity to work with, but he really is just one of the smartest, hardest working, and just all-around fun guys to hang out with. Uh, he's South African by birth, um, and uh, so he can be a little bit uh, serious sometimes, which is fine. And that's why I'm a little bit bummed we get, didn't get a chance to get into the Marvel Universe, because as much as he knows about exercise science, he also knows about uh, Marvel characters, especially from some of the recent movies. So on a future podcast, we'll get into that. Anyway, if you like the information of what you heard, if you want to come and learn from us, as I said, we'll be at the SCW conferences this year. Go to scwfit.com. You can use the code McCall17, and you'll save a little bit of money on registration, and you can come find out, come do a little bit of learning, whether you're a fitness professional or you just want to learn more about exercise and fitness and how you can use it to change your life. If you have any feedback, um, please send me an email, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. I certainly appreciate uh, any input you may have. I want to make this show work for you. I want to make you uh, help you get more information about fitness and exercise and how you can use it to enhance your life. So please send me an email. You can follow me on social media. Instagram is PeteMcCall underscore fitness. Twitter is PeteMC underscore fitness. And if you get a moment and if you really like the show, please do me a favor. Take a moment to rate it on either iTunes or Google Play and uh, so others can find out about it and hopefully get the same benefits. Thanks a lot and until next time, stay fit and have a great day.